0: All those who are holding tickets outside are getting as fast as they can. I'm speaking out to you, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather lucky reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon.
1: Hello, and welcome back to episode 10 of Worthy. I'm Ben. And I'm John. So episode 10, it feels like a big number for us. It's the first double-digit number. Uh, that we're hitting I feel like 10 is always a big one like when I turned 10 years old I was like oh my god I feel like an adult (laughs) and now that I'm 26 I'm like oh my god I'm an adult I don't know what I'm doing I'm like oh my god I'm still a child (laughs) I'm still a child yes that's the exact (laughs) feeling and to kind of keep myself in that childhood sense of state of mind uh, I like to do some things differently and what I'm talking about and trying to get to is talking about our rating system for these movies here on Worthy we like to give some numbers and stats and facts and we like to give our opinions in the form of uh, numerical values and that's been something that me and John have talked about way before we ever recorded the first episode how are we going to rate these movies how are people going to understand it and I think for the most part people have kind of gotten the gist of like what, how we're doing and rating it, but we wanted to kind of break it down at the beginning of this episode, do some other fun things. Uh, so, to kind of start talking about it, for me, when I grade these movies, I like to grade them like a letter grade, like you would get in school as a 10 year old boy. So, I put a lot more, they're a lot more like minute things that I'll take things off for. And that's where I end up with like an 86 or, you know, a 74 for some movies instead of just kind of like values of like five or whatever. Uh, I know John is a little bit more a little more rigid with his rating systems, uh, but I'll let John talk about that.
0: Yeah, so before we started, a lot of people might not know, but we have essentially like this master list of our best picture winners. And this is something that when Ben decided that he wanted to go through and watch every movie when quarantine started in 2020, that he was going to essentially track it and basically track his ratings along with some stats about the movie and uh, general ratings as well. So when he started that, it was all based on that like 100-point scale, that 100 system. But I'm really used to Letterbox. We've probably spoken about this a little bit before. I love Letterbox, and I love the five-star reviews in particular, just that kind of format rating, just because I think it's easier and more concise. It, rating something one-star is, I don't know, more understandable to me than rating something which would be like a 20 out of 100, which just seems a lot more intense. So... I want to ask you, Ben, this because it's kind of set up as like a grade scale that leaves when people talk about grade scales, it's, you know, pass or fail. So when we went to school, um, I don't know about near high school, but it was anything below a 70
1: would be failing. Anything below a 70 would be failing? I believe so. Or is it anything below a 65 maybe have kind of For failing? me, And when I grew up, it was always like anything below a 65 is like failing.
0: Yeah, that might have been. I might just be misremembering correctly here. But So the, for me then, if you're rating a film under that 65, then are you saying it essentially like fails as a film or can you enjoy a film that's under that 65?
1: No, I, I can definitely enjoy. It's... Uh, yeah so it's not like like the letter grade system that that most american schools use but it's a yeah i i do look at the movies with like a 65 as like ooh that's uh that's kind of low but then i also with movies that could be like a 79 doesn't necessarily mean that it's a very good movie i think that's pretty average and i i think i've said before that you know for these best picture winners i kind of want movies that are above and beyond that get higher ratings that you know if it's, if it's a B-plus movie, you know, for a Best Picture winner, that's actually, I would feel like pretty low. And, and we've actually been kind of spoiled with a lot of more modern films because there have been so many great, not only Best Picture winners, but just Oscar nominees of recent memory. And uh, so we've been kind of spoiled because those get just huge ratings. So when we look back at these movies, and we're also looking at From Modern Eye and, you know, from our perspective and, and, and seeing how film has progressed and then going backwards, it. I feel like we are a little bit harsher on these movies, which I think actually makes it easier to give it more specific grading. Yeah, no,
0: I could see what you mean by that. And that's that's really good points, because I was always wondering about that for your scale and whether it was always kind of difficult to put anything specifically below that. And if that was like you specifically saying you do not enjoy this film just first and then everything beyond that is like reducing that score down and down. So for me, you'll see that my numbers are usually always like round and flat numbers. It's because I basically judge a film out of five stars and then I'll essentially double that to make it a 10 out of 10 or in our case, a hundred out of a hundred. So that's probably why my scores tend to be lower in general. I would just assume based on that kind of conversion, going from five stars up to like a hundred point scale, it kind of tends to lower mine. Because for me, I think there's movies that are good that could be a three out of five stars but for you that would be like a 60 out of 100 so it would look worse on your scale than it would on mine essentially
1: yeah whenever i think about the star rating system i see a three-star movie i'm usually like not i don't have high hopes for it i like and I, maybe that's just like seeing as a kid when you see something that's like a five out of five stars you're like oh my god that must be amazing uh so i guess that's why i do want to do more of like a letter grade system and how like I work it out in my head and I'm not writing this down I don't know if you write like down yeah, like, no. like a rubric no like, yeah there's no rubrics. It, or anything it's just yet. like how like we process the movie and how we go through it and then I'm like okay like was that movie uh let's say was that movie a, a b or a B plus well if it was a b would it be a low b or a high b and that's where I get into like those the actual numbers those numbers yeah. exactly um so it's just a little uh, fun like mental game. And to be quite honest, and I've said it before and we've talked about it before, our our ratings don't matter. No one's ratings really matter. It's just kind of how yeah, you... It's all subjective of how you like a film. Yes, exactly. And like, that's kind of like the point of like even talking about films is that you get so many different opinions and points of view out of it that there's no right answer. You know, everyone likes to say, oh, Citizen Kane, the best movie of all time. Is it the best movie of all time? I don't think so.
0: <laughs> I think like subjectivity is is a huge part of film just because it's an old medium now especially so you have to consider like what you want in a character or what you want in a story there's like objective things about a film like oh you know you just brought up citizen citizen kane and that was a movie that like it showed sets in a way that like no one had been filming sets and that's like an objective statement that like they did something really unique in that movie you may not enjoy like kane's character or the actual story but you can't like objectively say that that didn't happen and didn't like it wasn't a new thing for cinema at the time
1: oh yeah 100 percent. like you can hate on star wars and all these like sci-fi movies fantasy movies but you know what they're here and they are most people like them so whether that's subjective or objective uh it's just a good story and i feel like with some movies it can be objectively like a well-made movie but the story sucks our a story can be really good, but technically it's a shitty movie. You know how of how it's made. So we wanted to kind of start this episode talking about that, and we also wanted to do something a little different. Uh, it being the tenth episode, we've gone through ten movies. We're a decade into the Oscars, and we figured we would do our own little mini Oscars uh, for the ten best picture winners. So it's not movies that were just nominated. It was it's only the movies that won best picture and. We, didn't, we couldn't do like all 20 categories that they would have had by the 10th Academy Awards, but we decided to break it down into just like we felt were the nine most important ones to do. Uh, and so without further ado, here are our 10th Anniversary Academy Awards. Best Editing. Best Editing for me, Ben. I chose The Great Ziegfeld.
0: And I went with It Happened One Night.
1: So tell me why you picked The Grand Three Hour The Great Ziegfeld. Why I picked that. Uh, so for me, I felt that that movie was, it wouldn't have done well if it wasn't edited together coherently. And even though we said, like, it's just a three hour movie, it's so unnecessary, but at the end of the day, it's actually put together pretty well. And then the dance sequences are so, like, it's all perfectly placed. And, like, that was the huge emphasis of the Great Ziegfeld of, like, these big musical numbers. And so for me, that was just like you know, what, let's toss Great Zigfield a bone and kind of compliment it that it was able to tell a story coherently, and it showed some really awesome dance sequences compared to like the war sequences we've seen in other movies we've already talked about.
0: On one hand, I like hate that because the movie's <laughs> so annoyingly long for no reason. But on the other hand, yeah, I can't deny like there's there's really amazing montages in that movie yeah. and like montages that felt more modern and uh, unique than like any of the other films. Um, But that actually leads me into why I picked It Happened One Night because I think that film is edited in a way that, like, no other film is. There's such, like, a snappy kind of nuance and, and humor to it that, like, we still see in modern comedy and modern film to this day. For instance, I'm just thinking, like, The scene where the car stops when she flashes like her leg, that iconic scene and the way quick cuts and it shows him like stopping, hitting his foot on the pedal. Like it's this really rapid editing that you see on like YouTubers videos or like a bunch of modern film, like really snappy, quick editing that I was just really shocked to see that that was almost a hundred years ago and it was really impressive. Best cinematography and the winner for me is Sunrise. I chose All Quiet on the
1: Western Front. So the reason why I chose Sunrise for best cinematography was because I felt that that movie was outside of just being a silent movie was purely driven on the visuals and creating these, to me what felt like almost art pieces within the film. And it was just, well, it was beautifully lit. And I I just thought all the sequences like really jumped out to me. And I just, I just felt that when looking, when thinking about all these movies and replaying in my head, that Sunrise, even though it's not, a traditional best picture winner it is a very artistic film which is kind of the reason why it won so uh, for me the best cinematography through the 10 years subjectively is Sunrise
0: yeah I think objectively Sunrise has some incredible camera movements and really impressive like camera work and even going after that being the first Academy Awards and we have like eight nine other movies after that and when we look at all 10 a lot of the films have like really static kind of very basic cinematography which you don't have you don't need to have some crazy cinematography for a movie to be good in my opinion but uh, none of it really was like pushing the boundary and I think for the first academy awards and sunrise like it makes a lot of sense why you choose it and in fact I was close to choosing that but I chose all quiet on the western front specifically just because that movie it has to do so much in in the entire runtime and not only are the like fight scenes really well shot and really intense but the underground scenes the personal scenes like the close-ups all these different individual kind of scenes put together could all work on their own and i think that is what was most impressive and it's also a beautiful film like the opening before they like leave germany and go to war like there's just awesome beautiful wide shots and yeah that film's just like amazing you could take Any frame from that movie And make a cool poster out of it
1: Yeah, and I think we really liked it Especially because we were coming We were coming to it After the Broadway melody Which had no technical (laughs) merits To it whatsoever So seeing something So drastically different In All Quiet on the Western Front uh, Yeah, I definitely thought about uh, That for cinematography as well But there's a lot of love That I feel like that we give In these next few awards uh, To All Quiet on the Western Front And so I just wanted to Change it up a little bit Best screenplay Best screenplay for me Went to It Happened One Night I
0: gave the best screenplay award to *All Quiet on the Western Front*. So, Ben, tell me why you
1: chose *It Happened One Night*. Uh, I chose *It Happened One Night* just because I felt that the writing was the strongest and the dialogue was the strongest out of the film. And for me, that translated, you know, perfectly for you know Claudette Colbert and Clark Gable to act off of and, and use these scenes. So it just felt like the most complete and most modern screenplay, and it was just an overall great story. So. I had to give it to that to what happened one night.
0: That was certainly my runner up for best screenplay. I struggled between that and all quiet on the Western front, which I ended up going with specifically because I felt it had uh, more to say and it was more subtle and it juggled a lot of characters and it was really interesting and unique in the way that it started. And you kind of like couldn't really understand. And I don't know if that's direction or the screenplay itself, but it was kind of hard to follow who was the main character. And then, characters died and kind of weaned out as you figured out who exactly was our lead and, and where we were going on this journey so it was a really impressive movie just because it just really all came together it really told a great story with interesting characters and it also had a really impactful ending that made me think a lot about the movie after it ended
1: yeah it was my runner up too but I just went the other way with it best supporting actress I chose Joan Crawford from Grand Hotel
0: and I also chose Joan Crawford for Yay, Grand Hotel. Joan Crawford. We finally agree. We and agree? why is that? Because she's so entertaining to
1: watch. She is. She's so entertaining to watch. And kind of, unfortunately, it's a more shallow, uh, not shallow, but a not a big group of, of best supporting actresses to really choose from. But she really stood out in Grand Hotel. And she was definitely the best performance from that. And if you've talked to me recently, you know that I've now grown this huge obsession over Joan Crawford. Uh, solely based on that performance in Grand Hotel. That's why I chose it. And I'm pretty sure you're just as obsessed, if not as equal or less. I don't know how, best way to say that one. I
0: don't think I've seen enough of her films to say I'm obsessed yet, but I do want to go down that uh, Crawford rabbit hole at some point and uh, dive deeper into it. But she definitely, she has the it factor, I would say, like she's, yeah. I mean, that's kind of trite to say now because, you know, we've seen her career and she has that it factor, you know, like she's so entertaining to watch. She's like beautiful on camera and yeah, she's just got it. You know, she has, she just turns it on when the camera's on and this is an earlier performance for her and Greta Garbo was the kind of star in the film, but she's just so entertaining and yeah. so charismatic, you know?
1: Yeah. She completely stole the performance of all the stars in that movie. You know, she was kind of the newer one on the block and. She really did a great job with it. And um, so go Joan Crawford. Best supporting actor. For me, I chose Charles Lawton for Mutiny on the Bounty. And I went with Frank Morgan for The Great Ziegfeld. So we've had like a whole episode where like I just gushed over Charles Lawton. But let's talk about Frank Morgan first. Yeah, I think I was I might
0: have put Charles Lawton first. And then I was just like, let me really think about this. You know, I think the supporting categories were the hardest for us to decide because so far, there really hasn't been that many like beefy side supporting characters, especially for actresses and and the women in these films. But when I, I chose Frank because he's not just a straightforward character like Charles Lawton. As soon as he's in his first scene, like he's really entertaining and he's really like just evil as this fucking mean uh, ship captain. But it his character is not too complex. Like there's some complexity where it's about his history and his past, but. I think with Frank Morgan, their relationship throughout the film with Zigfield and how he's kind of grown to love him by the end. And I think it really cemented it with the last scene, which was really touching to me where he essentially lied to Zigfield because he knew it was for the best. And he lied and said that like, oh, they'll be fine. And he has money to help them, even though he didn't. So yeah, it was just touched me a lot.
1: Yeah, no, it was a very touching performance. But for me, like Charles Lawton, it was just like, it was such a meaty performance. There was so there's. There was a ton that he gave, you know, to that to that movie and and that performance itself. He was, he was just so captivating, and and today still remains like a very iconic role. And just as like a villain, he was. I you know, we we talked about that in episode eight, where like the villains are just so loved, and the Academy really does love it when when characters and and, and actors like just sink into like that darker you know state of 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 humanity. And just Charles Lawton for me really encapsulated that so that's why he was my best supporting actor of the first 10 films best actress i chose claudette cobert from it happened one night and i also chose claudette cobert from it happened one night yeah that one i don't think it's like really that difficult to choose no from, it's not from no. any of these you no. know leading wo- women uh from the first 10 movies i mean she was she was so good she might be the best performance i feel like out of any of the actors and actresses but that's something else to dive deeper into that's a big argument that they're out there (laughs) I mean I don't know she was really good in that movie she she really got me uh, and really pulled me into the story and just her acting mannerisms just the way that she delivered like all the lines the donut dunking scene the scene when they have to pretend that they're a married couple just she completely went full you know you know Went fully into it, and uh, I really think it was a great performance.
0: Yeah, I think the married scene that you just mentioned was something that was in the back of my mind. I, I think you could show that scene with no context to like anyone, and they would, one, immediately be like, what is this movie? I want to watch it. It seems super entertaining and funny. And also, like, damn, that girl's good. Like, it, It's one thing to switch between two different kind of characters, how fast and just hilarious she is and that chemistry she has with clark gable is just is amazing and it they just bounce off each other so well and unfortunately it's easy to choose her as best actress because there's really just hasn't been that many strong female characters in the first 10 movies and that's something that we need to at least like recognize and and say and uh, the the films that kind of starred women they were more kind of used like they were used as props either sexually or to kind of push a method or push some sort of ideology about the times changing and yeah i think uh, we'll see like way better actresses yeah yeah we definitely performances w- hopefully from the films
1: yeah we definitely will but um claude echo bear's performance still really uh just stands out through time really enjoyed it best actor i chose clark gable
0: so ben Tell me why you chose Clark E.
1: So I think for the same reasons why I chose Claudette Colbert was the same reason I chose Clark Gable. Uh Just the, again, like he dove right into that performance. He was so smooth, but yet there was there wasn't like a dickish way about him. And I feel like there's so many times where people like people will hate on these on older movies and and the men in these movies because they're just like all oh, their sleaze bags. They just want to sleep with women and blah 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 blah, blah. and. Clark Abel may have done that in other roles, but in this one, it it, it truly felt it, it felt real, and it, and it felt like someone who, who didn't... He, his his um, intentions weren't just to be with Claudette Colbert's character. It was to pick himself up, to write this grand story, and he just happened to fall in love. And so his mannerisms and his attitude wasn't influenced by love at first. It was just him being him, and he was just an interesting guy. Uh, to watch on screen Clark Abel really again like because of the script was able to do so much with it right and so it all goes like hand in hand it's all interconnected because of the script and these two performances
0: yeah he's a very interesting character because he changes so much you know he has this really recognizable arc and then you can see that directly uh, from the script to the screen and he's so charismatic as as we talked about with just uh Colbert as well but Yeah, there's something so charming about him and the way he can kind of bounce between, you know, like kind of poking fun at you, but also just being like, damn, I'll let you make fun of me all you want. (laughs) Like, you're so good at this. And I've heard actors talk about how rom-coms are... Just underrepresented when it comes to a performance in them, and especially the male and female leads that's a lot more challenging than people think to be kind of a light airy performance while also kind of having the gravitas like handle those emotional scenes and bounce between being kind of fun and light to to kind of having those heavy materials where things actually kind of fall apart so yeah, I loved his performance. he's great, and I hope to see more of mr gable
1: yeah yeah you uh, you certainly will in two episodes
0: best director
1: I chose. Lewis Milestone for All Quiet on the Western Front, and I chose Frank Capra for It Happened One Night. So we sort of flipped with like how we originally were going because you went heavy All Quiet on the Western Front. Oh yeah, and I was It Happened One Night um, early on with like screenplay, but we flipped with this director category. Very weird.
0: Well, I I thought about this a lot because All Quiet on the Western Front was definitely my first choice just because of what I've spoken about already from the screenplay to the cinematography it's a collection of so many great things and performances obviously all bundled up in one so you'd immediately think best direction or best director and I thought about it a lot and I was thinking about which one of these is my favorite movie and I was thinking like back and forth what could it be and what kind of defines the best director I think it's one of the hardest main categories to kind of define and usually it goes hand in hand with best picture. So I kind of leaned into that and I thought a lot about it and it happened one night and the way that he builds a world without really like going deep into the world, the way he has like these side characters, like the man on the bus, I forget his name, but he adds so much like weird charm to the movie, even though he's like this sleaze bag and all the people that are on the bus that they're like riding along with the people that are at the bus station. And the, the it's just, it's the, it builds this world. That's like so entertaining and fun. Also the lead performances are great. And, all the actors and actresses at the time when filming that movie talked about how it was going to be shit and it was going to be just like this bomb because they like didn't understand this movie. So not only was he beyond the film industry and beyond like the genre of romantic comedies and kind of define them, but he also just he blindly made this movie with people and they just didn't even understand what he was doing. So I think I had to give him that that best director category.
1: Yeah, I, I certainly don't think. Uh, I surely don't think you're wrong at all because I again like it was one of those situations for me where I was like Louis Milestone or Frank Capra and I went back and forth you know Capra he has three Academy Awards to his name it's the second most all-time in the best director category he gets a ton of love I, I still love him I think he's great I just went with Louis Milestone just because I I always like the movie's uh or at least i like when directors win more because of a technical element rather than just like because it was a good movie um when you're when you are making a movie when you're when you're when you are the technical person of the whole entire film like yeah you have to be a little you have to be creative and artsy but also there's a technical aspect to it and there's something that he that lewis milestone really brought to it and made it made all Quiet the western front feel very modern there is just something about the way that he was able to tell that story and adapt it from the book and make it seem so real. All the war sequences were so well coordinated, coordinated and choreographed, and I, I just thought overall, like we're just talking the technical aspects, like that was like the best movie. And so I just felt that he was very strong, and he led that uh, whole entire cast and crew to success. and so I, I just picked Lewis Milestone over Capra for that sole reason. Yeah, it was neck and neck for me.: It was yeah.
0: such a such a close decision.
1: Best picture. It Happened One Night. It Happened One Night. All right, so we both agree on best picture and I don't think it was it was like a little hard, but it really wasn't that hard because as great as All Quiet on the Western Front was or is really, uh It Happened One Night is that much better.
0: Yeah, my favorite movies are movies that I want to rewatch again and I think out of the 10 films that we've seen so far, It Happened One Night is the most rewatchable. It's addicting in a way where it's just like you want to live in this world and be with these characters all the time
1: yeah it's definitely the most accessible and whenever people have like asked me like oh like what's like your favorite movie that you you've done or like an early movie that you watched that you really liked I always tell people like it happened one night you should go watch it because it's it's not a long movie it's this fun romantic comedy that I feel like anyone can get into and just it overall like it has it and it also has that distinction that it shares with only two other movies winning the big five awards at the Oscars, picture, director, writing, and both the lead acting categories. So there is obviously something that people love about it cause to put in that distinction. And so out of these first like 10 movies, or I guess we haven't, we've been saying 10, but it's really 11 if you include sunrise, sunrise yeah. but it's the 10 Oscar ceremonies that we're talking about. Uh, it happened one night stands out as like the best of the best of the best pictures.
0: It happened one night for me. is one of those weird movies where it's a combination of future, present, and past. Where it's, it's progressive in the way it talks about sex and kind of, even though it doesn't portray anything, with, like you don't see much. It is pushing boundaries in the way it's kind of subtle in that way but it's also dated because it can't push those boundaries and it can't go past and even show any kind of form of like nudity not that it needed it to be better it's just this weird kind of mix and it's you can look back at it and be like wow this like kind of feels modern but at the same time it feels really dated because of just the way they talk about sexuality and I think that adds like another aspect of going back in time and watching it that it it makes it even more charming and like interesting to to go back and watch.
1: Yeah, I certainly agree. And I think if it was, I think if you told me that Claudette Colbert and Clark Abel were people from today and they made that movie today just to make it look old, I would have believed you. And um, I honestly think when we're all done, you know, with watching all these movies, you'll still look back at it happen one night and be like, wow, that was really a really good movie. But there is one movie that we haven't really touched on. And we've been saying it's the 10th Academy Awards, the 10th episode. We haven't said what movie we're even going to talk about. And there's a reason why. The movie is called The Life of Emile Zola. And so, John, I need to ask you this question. Is The Life of Emile Zola worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1937? The Life of Emile Zola. Set in the
0: mid through late 19th century, the film depicts Zola's early friendship with post-impressionist painter Paul Cezanne and his rise to fame through his prolific writing. It explores his involvement late in the Dreyfus affair. In
1: 1862 Paris, struggling writer Emile Zola shares a drafty Paris attic with his friend and painter Paul Cezanne. His fiance Alexandrine procures him a desk clerk job at a bookshop. However, he is soon fired after he arouses the ire of his employer Finally, a chance encounter with a street prostitute hiding from a police raid inspires his first bestseller, Nana, an expose of the steamy underside of Parisian life.
0: In spite of the pleading of the chief censor, Zola writes other successful books, such as The Downfall, a scathing denunciation of the French high command whose blunders and disunity led to disastrous defeat. He becomes rich and famous, marries Alexandrine, and settles down to a comfortable life in his mansion. One day, his old friend Cezanne, still poor and unknown, visits him before leaving the city. He accuses Zola of having become complacent because of his success, a far cry from the zealous reformer of his youth, and terminates their friendship.
1: Meanwhile, a French secret agent steals a letter addressed to the military attaché in the German embassy. The letter confirms there is a spy within the French general staff. With little thought, the army commanders decide that the Jewish captain, Alfred Dreyfus, is the traitor. He is court-martialed, publicly degraded, and imprisoned on the French island, Devil's Island. Later, Colonel
0: Picard, the new chief of intelligence, discovers evidence implicating Major Walson Esterhazy, an infantry officer of Hungarian descent, as the spy. But Picard is ordered by his superiors to remain silent to advert official embarrassment, and he is quickly reassigned to a remote post.
1: Four years have passed since Dreyfus's degradation. Finally, Dreyfus's loyal wife, Lucy pleads with Zola to take up her husband's cause. Zola is reluctant to give up a comfortable life, but she brings forth new evidence to pique his curiosity. He publishes an open letter known as Jacques Huse in the newspaper La Ori, accusing the high command of covering up the monstrous injustice which causes a firestorm up and down Paris. Zola barely escapes from an angry mob incited by military agents provocateurs as riots erupt in the city streets. As expected, Zola is
0: charged with libel, his attorney, Mitri Labori, does his best against the presiding judge's refusal to allow him to introduce evidence about the Dreyfus affair. Zola is found guilty and sentenced to a year in prison and a 3,000 franc fine.
1: With the demand for justice reaching a worldwide level, a new French army administration finally proclaims that Dreyfus is innocent. Those responsible for the cover-up are dismissed or commit suicide. Walls in Estrahazy flees the country in disgrace. Zola dies of accidental carbon monoxide poisoning due to a faulty stove the night before the public ceremony in which Dreyfus is exonerated and inducted into the Legion of Honor. Zola's body is buried in the Pantheon in Paris. To a hero and warriors, farewell. The Life of Emile Zola stars Paul Muni
0: as Emile Zola. Gail Sondergaard as Lucy Dreyfus. Joseph Schildkraut as Captain Alfred Dreyfus. Gloria Holden as Alex Dream Zola. And Donald Crisp as Maitri Labori. Life of Emile Zola was directed by William Dieterle, Written by Norman Riley Rain, Heinz Harold, and Giza Herzeg. Source material based on Zola and his time by Matthew Josephson.
1: Produced by Henry Blank, Halby Wallace, and Jack L. Warner. Music by Max Steiner. Cinematography by Tony Gaudio.
0: Film Editing by Warren Lowe And Art Direction by
1: Anton Grot Makeup by Perk Westmore So before really breaking down this movie, the movie gives us an opening title card that I think it would be nice to set up this whole conversation on the life of Emile Zola. It reads, This production has its basis in history. The historical basis, however, has been fictionized for the purposes of this picture, and the names of many characters, many characters themselves, the story, incidents, and institutions are fictitious. With the exception of known historical characters whose actual names are here used, no identification of actual persons living or dead is intended or should be inferred." That is a very strange way to open a movie. It's a very strange way to say that even though that this is a historical movie and that we're going to use real names, the essential character basis of these people are not really based on them. It could just be coincidental that's based on anything. How does that seem to you, John? Because that feels a little bullshitty to me.
0: This is the first Oscar movie that we're seeing now. The disclaimer before the film starts, and it is it is very odd because we haven't seen that yet. We've seen title cards, which is normal. So I was really interested why we're starting to see this because the last film, uh, The Great Field, we saw we didn't see a disclaimer. We just saw like normal opening credits that we'd see with um, introducing all the actors that are going to be in the film. So I wanted to learn a little bit more about why this happened and maybe why we were shown like a disclaimer saying, "Hey, these are based on real people, but we're kind of." smudging and changing history around. So this originally came and started when an exiled Russian prince sued MGM in 1933 over the studio's Rasputin biopic. Uh, they claimed that the American production did not accurately depict uh, Rasputin's murder and therefore wanted some sort of documentation or at least public documentation that this is fictionalized, that this is not a documentary. This is a before that we, you know, we, we were getting news and newsreels just started around the early 30s right and we we're trying to like establish news and a lot of people I think were looking at these big films and kind of assuming that this is direct and you know directly from what history was at the time so they I just guess started to kind of employ these and I guess it may have depended on how much they were willing to change maybe what studio it was or maybe they were just trying to avoid this at all but it's interesting that the last one we saw the great Ziegfeld didn't have any kind of warning or disclaimer like this but this film does and I think you know specifically why maybe because of a certain party of uh, people from a certain country that we'll get into that may have uh, had some hand or sway over the way the film has changed over time. So it is interesting that it starts this way. And
1: Yeah, it's it's more strange for me because it's one thing to, yes yeah, say the characters in this movie are fictitious and they're not based on real people. That's fine. But to say the story is fictitious and then still hit – Most of the major points, although not the biggest of points about the Dreyfus affair, is a little confusing. And it just kind of it's a big indicator of like what is to come with this movie, which is the fact that it just like kind of goes through the motions and it just has these parts of the film. It's more like a big picture look, but never really too deep. And this is where we start with the life of Emile Zola. I think maybe you can already tell we're not like huge fans of it. Uh, but it has some good things and some bad things, but one of the bigger issues with the way this movie is structured is that it, again, falls into that very episodic storytelling that we found in some previous Best Picture winners that just doesn't really fit well, and then all of a sudden you get a clunky two-hour movie, and at the end of it you're kind of like, well, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, What even happened? Was there a point of, point of this movie? Was, did anything really even happen?
0: I think it's a little bit different for Ben. I'm not sure. I think your first run through of these movies, you didn't really look up too much about them. You went in like cold. And I'm doing the same thing because this is my first time through the entire list. And if people listen to this podcast and disagree or think one of us is stupid, uh, I think it can help you with that. And I thought this whole movie, Emile Zola, was based on a woman. Um, <laughs> so I went into this film and I was just waiting for the main actress to appear. And I was confused in the first 20 minutes because I was like when does a meal Uh, and then I was like oh wow Okay, I'm I'm dumb. This is not, this is not what this is about. I was like, oh, we're we're ten years in. Like, this is, seems appropriate now. Can we actually have a leading female character? So that caught me off guard immediately. And then I kind of realized after the first scene, you know, that it's Sola's author. This is, is going to be his biopic essentially. And I think that's a great place to start because a lot of people call this a biopic, and uh, you know, we just saw a biopic that I think is more in line with what we're used to seeing in biopics. And this doesn't really feel exactly like a biopic to me so ben do you think you would call this a biopic if someone asked
1: no i wouldn't call it a a biopic i would call it a movie based on a historical event and that's because like there isn't really much to emil zola's life that we get to see we see like an earlier part of his life when he's i think it's supposed to be like his early 20s you know it's really hard to tell because paul muni is like 40 years old but doesn't really present himself that way at the beginning of the film uh but it just goes like really more into, like, Zola's, like, later uh, later life events, uh, which are, like, really historically are significant. Um, but as a movie, it just doesn't really do much for me. So, yeah, I wouldn't call it a biopic uh, just because it doesn't really go through his life. It's just, even though it says it in the title, it's just, like, kind of a really big event that happened, and then it's also preceded by how he started his career.
0: Yeah, we read the synopsis for you all, and... It's You can read that, and it you just keep hearing about Dreyfus, Dreyfus, and why is this not the life of uh, Alpha Dreyfus? <laughs> because it's not really just about Emile Zola. He's really not very interesting in this movie, because there's not much to do. They kind of portray him as this uh, kind of like thoughtful, goofy, profound author, and uh, the very ideology of basing a film on an author is really challenging because it's two different mediums and it's a medium that you physically have to sit down and read and that's really hard to portray on film and I think that's one of the reasons this movie struggled for me and it's just not a biopic to me at all because really the biopic aspect is the first act of this movie which they take you through Emile Zola's life and they go throughout his career how he'd grown from you know interviewing uh, street prostitutes in Paris and how he blew up eventually to writing these huge huge novels that like kind of change and influence the culture in Paris. And that's some of the most interesting aspects of this movie. And it's all kind of banged out in the first 25 minutes. So you can get to uh, Alfred Dreyfus and that whole drama there, which is interesting in theory, but it's just, they don't give enough time to kind of dive into one or the other.
1: Yeah. And we've said this before with other movies where it's like, it's two different things that should have been like separated and made their own movies. And it's the same thing with this movie again. Like you have, you had the first like, act of the film talking about zola and going through uh what's leading up to his like stardom and and where he is in life and it actually picks up a little bit as you're finishing up act one um and it ends that first act ends with his friend Paul Zazan. they're a little bit older now they've zola's got so much money he's written i think maybe like 15 20 books that they kind of show like in a montage sequence that he's written so he's much older in life and his friend Paul challenges him by basically saying that he's become the person that he didn't want to ever be. At the beginning of the film, they're talking about how they want to tell the truth and that they want to expose this like Paris underlife and and to be artists and, and real forward thinkers. But at the end of the day, Zola still becomes like this fat cat. Literally, he wears a fat suit, and he just kind of is like a, a rich guy, just like going through the motions. Like in that aspect, in that regard of his life. And so for me, like, it was like, oh, like, is this movie going to be about how Zola has to reconnect with his younger self? He's going to go back through his old work and then he's going to write something significant that's meaningful for him that interconnects him, that connects him back to where he started. But no, because then the movie jumps right into this whole, like, spy thriller, which is really good, but makes no sense with, like, why it's included with this story about Emil Zola.
0: Yeah, it feels really disconnected. Like, this should be called, like, Emil Zola in the case of Alpha Dreyfus or something like yeah, that. Yeah, Dreyf- the
1: Dreyfus affair and, and Emil Zola.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's, it's way integral to the film than even Emil Zola's life. And they do kind of hit on those notes where it's about him kind of reconnecting with his own self and kind of trying to get there. But it's not what the movie, like, really wants to focus on. And it really just wants to focus on Dreyfus, which... Um, you know, is interesting because you have this man who's persecuted and he's taken away from his family, and it's really, really kind of depressing that it happens. And you know, it's completely just not right from history perspective, but also it's pretty disgusting to watch in the film the way they treat him. And Alfred Dreyfus is played by Joseph Schildkraut and he gives a great performance. Not not to spoil anything, but he's pretty uh, worthy. He's pretty fantastic, and um, he's kind of carries the film for the dramatic two thirds. You know, tries to carry the weight of being this tortured man who's in prison uh simply well really we don't really know why he's in prison in the film but in history it's a little bit different right Ben
1: Yeah I we keep on like I think like circling around this but this is something that like I feel like I just have to talk about like now and so if this movie is based on historical things like Emile Zola was actually involved in the Dreyfus affair and he he wrote uh, a newspaper article or he, he wrote he wrote an essay that was printed in a newspaper I should say called Jacques Hughes. And the whole reason why Dreyfus was initially arrested, they used it because he was Jewish. He was a Jewish officer in the French army, and in the late 1800s, you know, there was a lot of anti-Semitism in France, and and that was something that was emphasized throughout this case. And it was something that was so well known about the Dreyfus affair was that he was arrested and accused because he was Jewish, because there was so much. There's this huge wave of anti-Semitism in France at that time. And the movie doesn't even acknowledge that. The only acknowledgement that they give of Dreyfus being Jewish is when they are first looking at, like, who pe- who are the people that they could possibly accuse and they being, you know, these French army officers. They just go through a list and they see Dreyfus's name and all it just says next to his religion is Jew. And that's the only mention of it. And then the whole point and the whole reason why he's arrested is because he's Jewish and there's a reason why it was left out. And the reason why, and this is, Based on pure speculation, like there's no like hardcore evidence, but there's a lot of there's a lot of people who have talked about it, there have been books written about it. And it's the fact that Nazis had a hand in Hollywood at some point point. and whether we don't know the extent of it, and this is all pure speculation. So the, like what me and John are going to talk about and say isn't like concrete evidence, but there is huge, huge, huge speculation that Hollywood was influenced by Nazis what and that could be money driven because they didn't want to lose the german markets which is understandable i mean before you know like what the germans are really doing like at the time they didn't know so it's understandable you want to keep the german market so you're trying to keep you know you're trying to keep the nazis appeased that way they would also be doing it because at at the time you know this is coming out of the great depression and so there was a lot of political changes happening around the world there's a lot of people a lot of countries falling into communism and it being america we'd don't want to be communists and we just went through our own great depression. So there was some feelings and thought that potentially if we were making movies that kind of in a way might've reflected some of the good things about communism and socialism with, with Nazism at the same time that people would probably want that. So there is like this sort of like bias and like ways to like go around it. And there's, there's so many other things. There's a New Yorker article from 2013 that are, that outlines two different books about Nazis and, in, in, in Hollywood and, he points out a, a figure named George uh, Gisling, and apparently George Gisling was a Nazi officer who uh, had some sort of influence, had held some sort of court within these high in these big production studios, and he was able to give some sort of influence, whether it's cutting lines, getting to see films before others, cut scenes that could have been, you know, anti-Nazi in any way. And there's even you know known reports of films being pulled from this era that were anti-nazi so it's like it's very convoluted there's so much going on but this whole movie the life of emil zola completely forgets and disregards the biggest historical aspect of the film and it's really hard to like not bring that up and like dance around it but i we just have to bring it up like right now the sort of the beginning of this discussion on it
0: yeah i go to the modern kind of film era where china and Korea are just such big markets for Hollywood right now and they're even bigger than uh, Hollywood or America really is as a market Um, and I look back and I think about what film was like in the 30s and Germany and Paris were like the two leading kind of countries behind the United States when it came to film and not only just the audience but obviously film production as well so I think about you know if you compare studios like marvel that are now like adjusting and changing things based on a chinese audience maybe lines, things written here and there i could see that being changing you know changing something in this film to kind of like get away from that to not offend people to not put down an audience that might be a huge money maker for you is that right ethically i don't really think so and you know i think the artist should make the art that they want to make and you should put it out to the world, whether it's positively received or not. But these are not just artists. You know, you have the artists and all the people that work hard on these films. But then there's the people that rely on the money and, and want to make the money on the back end here. So it's really tricky. You know, I'm we're never going to be in favor of anything Nazism. But I think we're usually in favor of truth and honesty and expressing true events as truthfully as you can.
1: Yeah. And it's it hits home for me being Jewish, too. And the whole film industry itself is built upon jewish people and it's whether like people want to make fun of that or not it's just like a thing that just happened it just it is what it is and to and and also to expand on that you know paul muni who started in life of meal zola he he is jewish he actually was a yiddish theater actor here in new york so there's just so much jewish ties to hollywood that it's such a tough pill to swallow from today's perspective that there was some sort of involvement and we don't we don't know but it's there there's stuff out there to to prove that there was some sort of connection between nazi between between nazi germany and hollywood at some point and that probably was driven mostly by the fact that they didn't want to lose a huge market you know in europe and germany um which it's it's unfortunate and it wasn't like that people are only now or at like way beyond the fact that it was recognized that there was like no mention of the anti-Semitism within the Dreyfus fa- Dreyfus affair within the life of Emil Zola. Uh, from a New York Daily News article review of the film uh, from from 1937, uh, it says the one serious flaw in the dramatic construction of the screenplay is the omission of the motivating angle of the Dreyfus case in 1894. An unreasoning wave of anti-Semitism swept through France. It was particularly violent among army officers is directly responsible for Dreyfus a Jew being falsely accused of passing documents containing army secrets over to the German ambassador when it was known to the general staff that one lieutenant Esterhazy was the real traitor so it's acknowledged back of when the movie was first released that they omitted this huge thing but yet everyone still fucking loved it and like i just like, i don't get it and i don't know I mean, the the Academy Award, like, helped found by Louis B. Mayer, he's, he's Jewish. And if you just saw the movie Mank, he makes – like, they make his character make a whole speech about, like, him being Jewish and, and like, having chutzpah and, and it being his family. So it, it's just so puzzling that, like, you know, Hollywood went along with it for some reason. Again, like, we don't know. We're just speculating. This is, like, what we're researching and finding out. But it's just such a prevalent thing that the life of Emil Zola just admits this huge thing about the whole case, the whole storyline, the whole reason for why it even happened in the first place.
0: Yeah, it's it's really hard to ever know why that is the case. And I think we just have to judge the movie on what we were presented. And as a whole summary, I just, I kind of ran into this movie in the same way I ran into Cavalcade, which was it felt like someone just wanted to make a documentary or they wanted to just show history essentially. And Cavalcade kind of went through and it was it was more you know it was more victim of this as well the way he tried to jump through times and kind of show all these events and this felt the same way but just about this one particular author and then about this one particular event that the author had his hands in and it just wasn't very interesting and I don't think every film has to like push boundaries every film has to have really interesting cinematography or if it's just not really interesting but I just found this movie to be very dull it's it's really slow even though it's only two hours you know we don't really dive deep into emil zola's character it's like the film just wants to kind of keep moving forward so we can get to dreyfus and that's where the drama is you know we get him being falsely uh, persecuted and it's emotional where he's losing his his kids and his um, wife but there's just not even that much to, to kind of dive in deep there they don't really want to give uh, Dreyfus that much like backstory they kind of jump into it right as he's being uh, removed and persecuted and it's just pretty simple it's just kind of hitting through the beats where he's just going to be you know convicted and then we're going to have the author Emile Zola come in and try to save the day but it's very slow and we go through this this trial and not much is happening and you kind of know where it's going to go even though I had no idea what the actual history was so it just wasn't really engaging as a film. And even when you look at the actual versions of the film, you know, I watched this on Amazon Prime, then you watched this and bought it on uh, Apple, and it just wasn't really well preserved. And we've talked about this previously, where it's kind of a indication of how people look back at this film and think about this film throughout film history, where if it's pretty degraded and not really cared for in terms of its uh, preserved copy that we now see on streaming services, it's probably a telling sign that people don't really need to go back and watch this movie, or they don't really need to preserve it to remember it in history.
1: Yeah, one thousand percent. Like it was not, a, it wasn't a well-preserved film at all. Um, it wasn't. Yeah, again, it wasn't well-made. Uh, the the non-inclusion of, of all this anti-Semitism is still mind-blowing to me. Um, they sort of touch upon like anti-Nazi things, but they don't directly say it. Like they have, like. Zola's books being burned or and like mobs like chasing him and it feels very like you know Nazi Germany asking like that and like those scenes but the, even then it's like it's it's goofy because Zola is like there seeing it all happen so it's like the coincidence that Zola's just walking down the street when everyone starts going after him and having this angry mob it's just very clunky and and yeah again like the structure of it is just it goes through the motions it just it just keeps going and just doesn't really like settle it doesn't want to take the time to like really dive deep into things and like and yeah you could you could say that like oh but they spend 40 minutes in this whole like courtroom scene yeah but like what is the courtroom scene like really it's really just establishing that the french army is going to do everything they can to to stop it to stop it and that they're probably not going to be successful and
0: emile wants to help dreyfus then which we
1: already know both
0: sides already yeah we
1: we know that so we don't need like a 40 minute like courtroom scene uh, to really depict all of that for us, um it, yeah, it's just clunky, I mean, even with that courtroom scene, like, okay, sorry that I'm not French, I don't understand the French judicial system, but it's really confusing to see how it's all set up because you have these like random you know army officers and like witnesses coming up and down from the stand whenever they want. It's not like that traditional way. There's like a whole panel of judges, and like, yeah, we have the Supreme Court and many different committees and like you know hearing committees here in the u s but when it comes to like someone going on trial there's like one judge and so just like we're, we're used to like that um, sort of like set up an aspect to a film and then when you see it differently it better be done like so well that you don't even like notice it and the fact that I was like noticing I'm like how does this whole judicial system work means that I'm more interested in the French judicial system than the actual story of yeah, the what's life actually, actually happening yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah it's one of those movies where you're like oh, god damn there's not even like things that I can point out like oh that shot is bad like it's out of focus or this actor is giving a a distracting performance or the it's really just comes down to the script which the script is kind of well-renowned at the time where it it felt so tongue-in-cheek looking back at it now like it felt like it was kind of like talking above the audience as if like the audience was kind of dumb in a way where you had to kind of like break things down and and even going back we watched a couple more scenes just to kind of like get a better understanding of the movie and we watched uh, the very end which if you don't know or spoilers if you want to <laughs> know uh emil zola dies and he dies of carbon monoxide which is a really weird way to die and especially a weird way for a biopic quote unquote to uh have its main character die and before he dies it's like poking fun essentially that like what if I died like wouldn't that be crazy wouldn't my work live on and then he dies literally seconds after he says all these things so but while I didn't even notice that while I was watching it the first time because I wasn't expecting him to die I didn't know the actual history of any of this so it was a little more shocking and it didn't really rub into me as much but watching that scene again I was like wow this script is ridiculous like if you knew about this guy in real life and you watch this like it's it's goofy almost to the point where they're like ha 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 like it becomes like comedic in a way where like I might die but my work will live on and that's what's important and it's really preachy and overwritten and the
1: whole script is just like it's way too much for like how little the actual story is yeah and we'll get to like Paul Muni has like two really good speeches towards the latter half of the film but yeah, it's like it's clunky. Like the same thing with the Greg Zigfield. They'll say something or they'll reference something, and then like with Zigfield, he'd be like, "Hmm, let me think about that," and then all of a sudden he'll make a play about it. Same thing with Zola. He'll he's talking to this like prostitute, and he goes, "Well, what's your name?" And she goes, "Nana." And then the next thing you see is a book cover of his book named Nana. N- named Nana, and then they'll. And and then he'll say something else about like oh I like so he'll say the word like justice and then they'll make like a little scene about that and then his next book is called Justice. Yeah, it's like so pitch perfect. Yeah, it's just it's always it's all on the nose. It's like you it's pretty predictable for like where it's gonna go. Like and like I've you know, I never read Emil Zola's writings and I'm sure that I'm sure it's good. Like I'm not saying Emil Zola is like bad. I'm just saying this like movie is is bad. Because it just doesn't give probably what Emile Zola deserves in justice and it, and it doesn't give the Dreyfus affair any kind of justice with the way it's depicted um, uh, but, but yeah, yeah but Paul Muni does give somewhat of a, of a good performance I would say that I mean it's not Clark, Clark Gable like we said at the beginning of this movie um, you know and Paul Muni did win an Academy Award for the story of the life of Luis Pasteur from the year before so like people like really like him and, and he's definitely getting a lot of roles um, but this movie like it's like two scenes where like he really it's like oh okay like that's like a good performance but the rest of the movie is kind of like meh don't like i don't care
0: yeah so he's coming off of the best actor from last year as uh, uh Louis pasteur from the story of Louis pasteur and i watched that movie just because i wanted a little bit uh more context in the last episode and he's almost playing the same exact character in that movie. He has like very similar makeup. He's kind of has the same mannerisms. He talks like kind of refined, and he like deepens his voice. And it's all everything's supposed to be like so profound. And uh, it's not a bad performance because I don't even think like anyone in this movie is a bad performance. It's just it's okay. It's more in the writing where it's just it's you. I want way more than what they're giving us, and the little like faint moments of it being really interesting. Are just so fleeting And they're so far in between So you know Paul Muni is there He's entertaining I think the best performance or aspect And what you would see in like an Oscar clip Would be that long speech that he has in the courtroom Which was like a six minute speech Where he just went on and on That even the actors were giving him Like a round of applause after he finished
1: Well why don't we read like some of that Because it's a really beefy monologue And like I've like tried to memorize lines I took a Shakespeare class in college Where we had to uh, memorize and recite, you know, uh, different parts from different plays. And, and I did one from Henry V, and that was maybe like 20 lines. And I was like, oh my God, how, like, that was so difficult. It took me like weeks to like prepare and remember all that. But this, like, you look at it and, it, and it's, it, it's uh, like a few hundred words. It's a lot. Um, so let's start at the beginning of it. Um, and we're only going to do, like a, we're not going to do all of it, but uh, he starts out with saying, However, my profession is writing, not talking. But from my struggling youth until today, my principal aim has been to strive for truth. That is why I entered this fight. All my friends have told me that it was insane for a single person to oppose the the immense machinery of the law, the glory of the army, and the power of the state. They warned me that my actions would be mercilessly crushed, that I would be destroyed. But what does it matter if an individual is shattered, if only justice is resurrected? That's a great line. It's a great way to start a speech wish, wish that. that was in the rest of the film. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
0: he does have some really really great lines throughout this entire speech, but it's I I just wanted like more from his character to make me care. Like, uh, it's great that he's like fighting. It's just the issue is like it's hard to get a uh, uh, authors work through a film they have to like spout it at you and that's why this film does that he meets the prostitute the book comes out because it's about the prostitute so it's like oh you put two and two together that's uh kind of what he writes about and what he pursues in his his pursuit for having justice for france and uh independence and the underground belly of france and revealing that and especially in paris but It's just, it's always keeps you like at a foot distance, like an arm's distance. Like it doesn't want to let you into the film and into the world and into the characters. This is a dramatic speech and maybe it's something that kind of led to the cliche of big courtroom scenes and big courtroom speeches. So I think we can at least give it a nod for that. And it is well written when it comes to like some of the witty dialogue, but it's also, as we talked about, kind of clunky in the way it's written.
1: So you say that like it, it could have been an originator of like these big courtroom speeches, but I actually think like Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, like that whole courtroom. Yeah, right before, right before, a couple <laughs> like, of years before this, right? Yeah, like the year before this comes out, like that was a better courtroom scene. Yeah. And like just had more life to it. And when you're saying like it keeps like Zola keeps you a foot away, that one brings you in. That one makes you feel like you're actually sitting there and you're actually experiencing it. With Zola though, you're, it's very, again, like it's so confusing. And like, again, like I'm sorry, I don't know the French judicial system, but I like don't understand like how how it all works and he even says in this speech you saw for yourselves how my defense was incessantly silenced." like damn that that all happened but you like give this whole speech at the end and yet he's still you know he's still found guilty for libel which is like a, a apparently a year of imprisonment in, in france at least at that time it's just so clunky and like yeah so like okay great like we got this huge great monologue from him but that doesn't make a movie that doesn't make two hours you know six out six minutes doesn't make up for another hour 54 minutes of like just boring droning scenes that uh, people just talking and talking and talking you're like what's the point of you talking right now like what does this accomplish
0: yeah some people might look back and be like oh you're just not giving enough attention you're not digging deeper into these lines but they should all serve for the story and the story moving forward the plot moving forward and it doesn't like we established in the very beginning this court scene that takes up a third of the film one it doesn't lead anywhere because that's what happened in history you know it leads to the him being uh kicked out of france and running away and two, it's it's so much time dedicated to something that doesn't go anywhere and something that like kind of just spins in a loop to just to like have the discussion over and over again of how uh the army is is being unfair and the treatment of Alfred Dreyfus is, is very unfair and just unjustified. And we get that, like we get that from the very beginning. And if the story actually went into why and the anti-Semitism that was, you know, surrounding France and that influence from Germany and Nazi party, that it would have been a way more interesting film because you have all these like conflicting ties and it's way more dramatic, you know, like there's just way more that could have been included
1: here. Yeah. No, I wanted more too. And like, that's where, like that's what it just feels like that's it for really just like zola's part of this like film and like yeah it like stars him but there's just it's like you have two good scenes when he reads the jacques Hughes piece and then when he gives his courtroom speech otherwise it's him just being like i want to tell the truth all right i wrote all my books i'm a fat old guy now oh there's a Dreyfus thing happening oh great oh here's Dreyfus's wife oh you want me to come okay i'll do that and then i'll write this whole thing it's just like that's it like that's his story
0: yeah it's right. and, it's forgettable, and you wish it wasn't because it's. Yeah, it's like the events are actually interesting. It's like it just wish the film was telling them in an interesting way.
1: Well, that leads me to like my next point, uh, and and I said it before that this should have been just Dreyfus's story, and like Joseph Schaukraut gives a really good performance. Like I keep on referencing this, those scene where he's stripped of all of his titles to John when we're when we're off the mic because we're not on camera, we're off the mic. But it's like he gives this like really impassioned, like roll screaming like I'm innocent i'm innocent to like this like crowd of people and like that's what starts to drive his performance and starts to really make it like a really compelling performance because he's his physical movements you can see it in his expressions the way he's like really talking you can just feel this man is like oh my god wait i'm being accused of something i didn't do oh my god i'm being taken away from my family i'm being imprisoned and tortured and you can see that in his performance whereas muni it's very like nose up you know I'm better than you type of thing. I'm going to say all these things because I'm this prolific writer. Like, that's how it comes across. And again, like, it's not, probably not who Zola was. Like, I don't know who Emile Zola was like, but that's what Paul Muni gave me.
0: Yeah, it's not much. He almost kind of goes into this mode where it's, it's very similar to his Oscar winning performance as Luis Pasteur. And I loved Paul Muni in an earlier film from 1932, I believe, Scarface, which is super just outgoing and if people love the modern version with Al Pacino or modern version not really the 80s version with Al Pacino uh, playing Scarface it's so alive Uh, just like Al Pacino Paul Muni gives this like intense lively performance where he's got this like kind of manic energy and he's so entertaining to watch he's so handsome and people credit this movie all the time for having some amazing makeup, which it does. I definitely will not um, discredit that because some of the makeup in this film is really, really great, and it it kind of helps us transition through the history of the time. But there's some issues with that as well because it's kind of hard to follow when we are in time. Um, but I do really love and want to give a shout out uh, specifically to the makeup, which was done by Perk Westmore that we read in the beginning, and. I wanted to give a shout out because he does change a lot over time. His makeup, they shot this film in like reverse order where he was older at first and then they kind of stripped the makeup away uh, over time basically to to become younger and younger and shoot the beginning scenes at the end. Um, I wanted to shout out Perk uh, Westmore because not only uh, is he this kind of this family lineage of makeup uh, artists uh, for the film industry, but he's really interesting. And I wanted to ask, what do you think his last... Film or TV show that he worked on before his career ended. All right, it's in well, it, 1970. I'll give you a hint.
1: Well, you said TV show because that makes it so it's <laughs> like, okay, so it has to be a TV show with like good makeup. Wow. That just something that he did. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, just by the way, I'm looking at you, <laughs> and it's going to be totally different. I'm just going to go with like the Brady Bunch.
0: Honestly, not too far off. He did it for the Cosby Show in 1970 oh. to I think <laughs> 1972, which I thought was really interesting, not only because. We're talking about someone who made movies and helped the film industry in the 1930s. Who's, his dad was a makeup artist uh, who started on Broadway and the stage leading into film. And then he, his son, Perk, kind of handled that and carried it forward. And then he ended it in... Like such an iconic era in television, so it's just interesting to to think about the careers of these uh, kind of small parts of filmmaking that you don't really think about. So I wanted to give a, a shout out to Perk Westmore to kind of discuss a little bit of the makeup.
1: I didn't. I would not have put that together, but yeah, weird uh, connection. Right? Very <laughs> weird, very weird connection. But yeah, like like the the makeup like tells you like time has passed, and that's because they there's like no indication that time is. You don't even know like what's really going on until uh, until like Dreyfus scenes where he's like stuck on. Devil's Island, and they show 1895, 1896. Like that's the only way of telling time. And again, like that's for Dreyfus's story. This is the life of Emile Zola. Like where is the? Well, how come we're not seeing scenes where he's writing all these books, where he's going through the motions, where he's having a tough time, he's having writer's block, like a blah 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 blah. You know, like we get none of that. We just get like, oh, he wrote a book and he's successful now. Okay, like, but we don't know like like, beginning of the movie. We know that he's writing books about the Paris Underground, but we don't know really what he's saying in them or how they're controversial. It just doesn't make sense as a complete movie, and there's two totally different storylines that are both not handled the best way.
0: So to wrap up the life of Emile Zola, I wanted to ask you about the ending because I spoke a little bit about the ending and how Zola dies of carbon monoxide, and it's, it's pretty... I want to say goofy, because it's not intended to be, obviously. And my first watch, it didn't really feel goofy. I just didn't really understand what was happening. So essentially, in this scene, you just have Paul Muni playing Zola, and he's just writing, you know, as he does multiple times throughout the film, pontificating on what he's writing about how his work's going to change and influence the world, hopefully, even if he's gone, but they keep cutting back to a shot of essentially his like fireplace or the kind of extension of the fireplace that shoots the smoke out to the fireplace. And they just keep showing the fire and the smoke coming out of it and you're like what is happening and then you slowly kind of see Zola essentially fall asleep they don't even like show you it's like a close up of his hand and then they cut immediately to the funeral so what do you think about the ending and his death
1: yeah i mean i get like it happened in real life so i don't know like the circumstances and like how it really all like came down like but at the same time it it feels a little weird it, it is like out of nowhere that it happens you know they do that in tons of movies where a character dies you know last minute we did it with grand hotel where the baron died you know in the last 10 minutes it's like well well, what are we supposed to do with this now and it's the same thing with zola it ends the movie in a in a more crazy way of zola you know uh he's in the this like pantheon in paris and he's I, i actually think he's buried in a very prominent place in france i forget i was reading it somewhere and now i'm forgetting exactly where he's buried but it's a very prominent place Um, but it gives a really good line at the end um, end of the film where he was uh, the preacher saying and give him this whole speech and eulogy about him and he ends it saying he was a moment of the conscious of man and that's like that's really good writing that's really good and that again makes me wish that the movie was about him as a writer and more about him trying to like his struggles his ambitions you know his friend Paul tells him that he's gotten old and he's out of touch and I, like if that was the movie I think I would have been more into it and that line would have hit harder that he was a moment of the conscious of man and he was always trying to find the truth but when it's like mixed in with the Dreyfus affair and again like forgetting all the anti-semitism uh that that actually happened that but didn't happen in the movie I just like at the end of the movie I'm like oh my god thank god it's over and you know zola's dead oh well that's just how i feel
0: so the movie changes a lot as we discussed removing any kind of like nazi ties to the film which most likely helped them after the film came out and helped them be more successful with the film and probably helped them get the best picture as well by leaving that stuff out but for me if you're going to make a movie and you're changing this much about the history there's rumors and investigations that maybe zola's death wasn't um like a natural cause. Maybe it was intentionally that his like fireplace was blocked or his chimney was blocked to allow carbon monoxide smoke to kill him. Uh, Or maybe he was poisoned and it was like, just use that as an excuse for his murder. And that's way more interesting. But instead this film kind of just wants to lift up and praise uh, the the biopic or the person that it's about entirely being the life of Emile Zola and just wants to praise him and say how he's the best man in the world and he helps so much, which may be the truth. Like I, we haven't read his work and and may be really fascinating, interesting, but the way more compelling and interesting story here would have been. An fu from like the French government, or like some mysterious ending where they killed him because like he ruined and made this huge public scene of something that was just supposed to be a small throwaway private persecution of Dreyfus. So, could be way more interesting.
1: Yeah. Well, we do know that France didn't show this film at first; that they were very reluctant, and they didn't show it really until like fifty years later. Did it get a really good like traditional release where a lot of people got to see it? Yeah. So maybe I would subscribe to that theory that he could have. Been murdered and it could have been a political plot i mean hell even the french government decided to convict a jewish man because yeah. because of espionage like i the
0: fact that they didn't it, show this film yeah. is even more evidence that like there was um, that they have an issue with zola yeah they, they have an issue with zola they have issues with like any kind of german reference or nazi reference yeah.
1: like I mean, yeah maybe maybe it is like a thing where they're trying to hide like they're ashamed of the past you kind of kind of have to embrace it at some point i think that's what this whole podcast has <laughs> been for us a lot yeah out. yeah yeah, like I I'm it sucks. It really does suck that the, that some of these early movies that early Hollywood is full of racism, full of sexism. All like awful kinds. Like I to I just watched Breakfast at Tiffany's last night, you know, at the timeless recording. And watching like Mickey Rooney's performance, like that was awful. That was so awful towards Asian Americans and just Asians in general. But like that's what this like industry was like built upon and it, and we like we me and John have to embrace that and have to like value these movies and say like you know like yeah like it's racist and sexist and like but it still has these kind of values but then when we get to like a movie like zola there's like no technical values there's no story values they completely botched a whole anti-semitic event and they just gave us a character that's just boring And, and so we just sit here like what are we supposed to say about this film which is why like you may be listening and maybe thinking like they're not really going deep into it they're not giving specifics it's because there's like no specifics to really give
0: yeah the film's really hard to talk about it's why we have such a big introduction and in, into the podcast here and why we talked a lot about the past 9 movies and not this 10th movie cuz it's it's really hard to talk about it's one of those movies where it's not like egregiously bad it's just kind of there and it tells these the event stories and it just feels like a filmmaker trying to make a movie that simply just tells the events of what happened. You know, it doesn't really want to do anything creatively different. It doesn't want to like push any boundaries and it really doesn't want to be that interesting or it just wants to be appeal appealable to as many people as possible that want to know about Emil Zola and, and hear his story, even though it's a really edited story. So I think it's this weird kind of confusion that we have watching this movie from our point of view here now. And I think that's a great way for us to to wrap up yeah. the life of Emil Zola. <laughs> The 10th Academy Awards were held in March of 1938. This is the first time the ceremony was delayed a week because of massive flooding in Los Angeles. We would later see three different years where this Academy was delayed, even now in 2020. Later in history, we will see two other years in 1968 and 1981 where the Academy Awards were also delayed. And one can make the argument that Now in in 2021 with the 2020 Oscars coming in the next couple of months that that is delay, even though it's a a world event that that led to (laughs) the delay in a way that the flooding in Los Angeles in 1938 was a huge delay. And I saw the flooding uh, kind of listed and described about the 10th Academy Awards, and I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into it because why would a flood be that bad? And I was, I guess, being idiotic and not really thinking about how bad the weather can be to our cities and our people. So in 1938, the flood destroyed 5,601 homes and businesses and damaged a further 1,500 properties. The flooding was accompanied by massive debris, mud, boulders, and downed trees that surged through the foothill canyons. Transport and communications were cut off for many days, and the railroads and roads were buried, and power and gas and communication lines were all cut. Dozens of bridges were destroyed by the sheer erosion of the force of the flooding waters, and some communities were even buried up to six feet in sand and sediment. It even took two days for them to restore the highway service in the impacted areas and the Pacific Electric Rail System serving Los Angeles. So, yeah, I just wanted to talk about the flood a little bit more just because it was, one, pretty shocking that this happened in 1938. It probably changed the way Hollywood structures were maybe built around the area and around the Hollywood Hills because they were probably, a lot of them were probably wiped out or, like, severely damaged. And it's an interesting academy effect because it changed and was the, the first delay in this, the ceremony.
1: Yeah, yeah I mean, um, Hollywood, it was originally all farmland. There's a great book called uh, This Was Hollywood, which kind of outlines that and how like open and spacious Hollywood originally was. But compared to today, it's, it's, a, it's a modern city and, and completely filled out, maybe too filled out, some would argue. But uh, yeah, so it's pretty devastating that that did happen. So it delayed the ceremony by a week, but the ceremony still happened. And before we get into the actual awards, uh, talk about the nominations for a second. Just because Emil Zola had 10 nominations, which was the most. Any movie at that time, it was the most in for best, double digits. In the double digits, it was the first uh, best picture winner to be nominated in ten different categories. About forty best picture winners have had ten or more nominations, so it's not like an uncommon thing. But it was nominated for best assistant director, best art direction, best sound recording, best scoring, best adaptation, best original story, best supporting actor, best actor, best director, best picture, and we'll go. Through all those. Uh, so yeah, so a pretty high number of nominations for a movie that we did not feel very glowingly about. We wanted to start
0: the 10th Academy Awards with the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award. So as we spoken about previously, Irving G. Thalberg, a heavy hand and producer in MGM, he would later pass away in 1936 so this was kind of big award simply because it was honoring thalberg and it would go on to honor huge creators like george lucas billy wilder steven spielberg warren Beatty, and so on and so on um so we wanted to give a shout out the winner for this year was daryl f zanuck
1: yeah, yeah and, and just really quickly the award is not given every year uh so there have actually only been 39 total presentations of the award and the most recent one that was given to or most recent recipients of the award were Frank Marshall and Kathleen Kennedy in 2018, and before that was Francis Ford Coppola in 2010. And I actually think Kathleen Kennedy is the only female to win the uh, Irving G. Thalberg Award. So very significant for creative producers whose bodies of work reflected a consistently high quality of motion picture production. Academy Honorary Award given out that year to Mac Senate for his lasting contribution to the comedy technique of the screen and the basic principles of of which are as important today as when they were first put into practice. The two other ones was given to Edward Bergen for his outstanding comedy creation, Charlie McCarthy. Um, And then it was also, another award was given to W. Howard Green for the color photography of A Star is Born. So yeah, so we have a movie that is in color uh, for the first time, but it's not the first uh, movie to win Best Picture that was a color film.
0: Best assistant director would go to... Robert Webb for In Old Chicago. Now this is the last year that they will give out the Best Assistant Director Award. Robert Webb has over 50 credits as a director, and his most notable work is directing Elvis Presley in the 1956 picture Love Me Tender.
1: Best Dance Direction went to Hermes Pan in A Damsel in Distress. So this is the last year of Best Dance Direction as well. So we're going to lose these two categories, which were short-lived. Uh, Hermes Pond was the actually the main dance director for Fred Astaire in all of like Fred Astaire's movies but also in those including Ginger Rogers as well. This was his only win he had lost the two previous nominations in best dance direction category and I would certainly say it's a deserved award for some probably the most iconic movement in the golden age of Hollywood. Best film editing
0: goes to Gene Havlick and Gene Milford for Lost Horizon. Now this is another Capra film based on the 1933 novel of the same name by James Hilton. So the film supposedly went way over budget and damaged the relationship between Capra and Columbia Pictures. And Columbia Pictures was the main production company that uh, Capra was kind of uh, known for at the time and kind of worked with consistently. A lot of his classic iconic films that we look back at now are under the Columbia Picture, like It Happened One Night, which I gave uh, my favorite editing for the past 10 years of the Academy history. And funny as it is, uh, Havlick, the winner of this Best Editing Award in 1938, also edited It Happened
1: One Night. Yeah, and Gene Milford, uh, he would win two Academy Awards, and so lost Horizon first, and then he won for the 1954 Best Picture winner on the waterfront. Best Cinematography went to Carl Front for The Good Earth. And I wanted to talk about Call Front specifically and not about The Good Earth. We're going to talk about that in a second. That's because he's notable because he was the cinematographer for Metropolis, Dracula, and I Love Lucy. So very different than Metropolis and Dracula, but he's most notable because he contributed uh the innovation of the unchained camera technique, which is camera not necessarily on a tripod or a traditional mount. So using like the camera's handheld or like on a crane is all thanks to uh call front. Un- he also used flat lighting techniques for *I Love Lucy*, which is now just the standard for shooting a multicam, you know, show, sitcom, anything that's in the studio. Like even the news, it's all flat lighting, so you can just shoot any angle, any direction. Um, that's all thanks to him. But the most significant thing that that ever did was he uh, he got his daughter Gerda out of Germany, out of Nazi Germany, before everything really went to shit. Um, but his ex-wife. Uh, Suzette had remained there, and she was supposedly murdered in a concentration camp. So we're going to praise Carl Frond because uh, we shat on the people who made The Life of Emil Zola for not talking about anti-Semitism, and Frond dealt with it, and he did something heroic by getting his daughter yeah, comes, out of Nazi Germany. It
0: comes full circle, and I, it even comes full circle in his career where he, he has Metropolis and Dracula, not only iconic films, and they're so known for like their beautiful cinematography and their like really contrasty uh, kind of black and white, play with the shadows throughout those films, and then to go on and influence I Love Lucy and kind of define the 50s sitcom. and the Not fi- even
1: the 50s sitcom, just sitcoms in general. Sitcoms in general, oh, yeah. yeah.
0: And define that kind of look of uh, filming and being able to cut in the sitcom world. Best art direction goes to Steven Goosen for Lost Horizon. A fun fact about Goosen was he was originally an architect in Detroit before joining producer Lewis J. Selznick father of David O. Selznick and this was his first and only Oscar.
1: Best sound recording went to Thomas T. Moulton for The Hurricane. Uh, This was a John Ford film. Uh, The Hurricane actually had a a pretty impressive hurricane recreation Uh, and this was Moulton's first of five Academy Award wins in the sound category.
0: Best song goes to Sweet Lilani* from Waikiki Wedding. Music and lyrics by Harry Owens. This is a Bing Crosby film. Harry Owens wrote the song after his daughter Lalani was born. Crosby supposedly heard the song and got Owens to agree to include the song in Waikiki Wedding, and they
1: would later win the award for this film. Best scoring went to 100 Men and a Girl for the Universal Studio Music Department. Uh, So again, we're seeing that music department thing, but this was actually a very controversial win because there was no composer credit at all for this, which kind of sucks. So the head of the Universal Studio Music Department, Charles Preven, was given the award and this caused a ton of backlash and AMPAS responded by separating the best scoring category in the 11th academy awards to best scoring and best original score so we're going to get a big uh, delineation and distinction of the two different categories next year uh, because of this movie 100 men and a girl
0: best short subject goes to walt disney productions and rko radio for the old mill
1: another one
0: Yeah, not much to say here. We've talked about him every episode now at this point. Uh, This was directed by Wilfred Jackson, uh, who was a sequence director on Snow White, Pinocchio, Fantasia, and Dumbo. And he was also a co-director on Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, and Lady and the Tramp. So pretty iconic director for Walt Disney and specifically their early animated
1: pictures. And we will talk about one of those in just a little bit. Best live action short subject, Color, went to... Penny Wisdom, Pete Smith, and MGM. So it was directed by David Miller. Uh, he would go on to direct uh, the Joan Crawford film Sudden Fear. And producer Pete Smith was well known for his Pete Smith specialty series and his recognizable narration.
0: Best live action short subject, Too Real, goes to MGM for Torture Money. This starred Edwin Maxwell and George Lynn. Maxwell was a background actor and four Best Picture winners, All Quiet on the Western Front, Grand Hotel, The Great
1: Ziegfeld, and You Can't Take It With You. Best live action sort subject, One reel went to Skibo Productions and Educational for The Private Life of the Gannets. Um, it was a documentary film on the Northern Gannet Seabird, and it's the first wildlife film to win an Academy Award.
0: Best adaptation goes to Heinz Herald, Geza Herzik, and Norman Riley Rain. Based on Zola and his time By Matthew Josephson Now Ben, here we are We're seeing a Mil Zola win for best adaptation Do you think this deserves best adaptation?
1: I, I, no it, No
0: Well, I'm, by default we're just saying how it doesn't work Because of the name, the movie being about Zola Even though yeah. it's not about Zola Like, it, the movie and the title and naming it that Like, immediately sets you up to be kind of focused about him But it just kind of footnotes and using an author writing term, like just kind of footnotes of his life that just don't really come together.
1: Yeah. And like this is, we talked about this in the previous episode where it, there's no like ad- adapted screenplay and original screenplay. It's the best adaption of something and then just the best original story, which still has adaption nominees in it. It's so weird and convoluted. Yeah. So it doesn't deserve this award. Fuck it. Like Emil Zola does not deserve that. Best original story goes to. A Star Is Born by William A. Wellman and Robert Carson. So yeah, this is the first A Star Is Born, which has been much more popular of recent because of the Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper version from 2018. Uh, there are also two other versions, one from 1954 with Judy Garland and James Mason, and the other one in 1976 with Barbara Streisand and Chris Christofferson. Do you think like A Star Is Born would have had a good shot in 37? It had seven total nominations so it was tied for the second most that year it was a color film which so it was already getting a lot of praise Janet Gaynor was the star William Wellman directed it he directed Wings do you think like without having seen it and having seen the 2018 version do you think that this version of A Star is Born could have won over Life of Emil Zola I think without a doubt
0: that it Definitely deserves this category with best original story. I mean, the movie's been adapted, what, four or five times now? So we know the story, its core structure. It's really interesting. The characters, you know, have a really interesting dynamic. While I didn't love The Star is Born from 2018. How did you not love that movie, John? I'm not going to go into that because that's a whole (laughs) podcast in itself. Um, I didn't.
1: Please stop. Please stop now.
0: Yeah, well, I didn't love the uh, the newest version. I think it's undoubtable, a really great and compelling story. Definitely worthy of the best original story. I think we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the outstanding production. And honestly, one of the reasons why I think immediately it wouldn't win is because it's a United Artists picture, which is like the kind of small, heavy hitter in the group of the big heavy hitters like, uh, you know, Columbia Pictures, MGM, WB, Fox, Universal, and RKO Pictures, it, United Artists is the, the kind of baby. And while it's probably the best film in the list, possibly, um, yeah, I, th- I would say it's it's worthy. But I, I want to go back and watch Every A Star is Born. I think that's a mission in itself.
1: You're a star, John.
0: Thank you. I was born, too. <laughs> best Supporting Actress goes to Alice Brady
1: in old Chicago as Molly O'Leary. So there's a very big myth and story around Alice Brady's win for this year for Best Supporting Actress was because she didn't attend the ceremony, and supposedly people thought that her Oscar was stolen. And it actually took a Columbia University doctoral student named Olivia uh, Rudigliano. I'm so sorry, Olivia, if I mispronounce your name, if you're listening, um, it's just how it goes sometimes uh, But she actually uncovered And demythicized Happened at this time So Alice uh, She retells this, the story in a Forbes article uh, Magazine so She says in March of 1938 Alice Brady was nominated for Best Supporting Actress For her role in the film Old Chicago She was unable to attend the ceremony And when she was named People apparently had just said a man walked on stage To accept the award on her behalf But it was actually the, uh, the director of the film and so there's this whole, like, misplacement of the award because people didn't know if she got just the plaque. And at the time, it was a plaque and not a statue. And no one knew who this man was. No one realized that it was director. Uh, so, But she actually did get the award. Eventually, she, she did get the award. But it did leave her position after that, only to be engraved. And um, there was no replacement really necessary uh, for her. So kind of like this weird thing that happened where was like, oh, my God, a, an Oscar was stolen. And it was the first time that's ever happened. But it, it's not a... Um, an uncommon thing. Uh, supposedly, there have been 75 Oscars that have gone missing, and, and only 60, 67 of them have been returned. But there are like stories, you know, Spielberg buying Clark Gable's Oscar for It Happened One Night for like $600,000, I think. And then he just donated it back uh, to the Academy. And even the Academy has a stipulation where if you decide to sell your Oscar, you have to let them buy it first, or let them at least make an offer, and that offer is only a dollar. Best, Best supporting actor went to. Joseph Schildkraut for The Life of Emil Zola as Alfred Dreyfus. So, John, we uh, we have another win for Life of Emil Zola. This is the second of the out of the ten nominations that it received, second win. And it probably went to the most deserving aspect of the whole entire movie. Yes. I mean, I
0: don't really think the character is that interesting because it doesn't dive deep into, like, really who he is in, in fiction um, or in, in reality and nonfiction. Um, but he does have those kind of like screamy dramatic performance because how can you not with a man who's being persecuted and he does have a really beautiful scene at the very end where he's finally let go and they open up like his prison I don't know if you remember this moment but they open up his door and it's almost like you can't even like believe it and he like kind <laughs> of is stopping himself from even going out into the sunlight and it's really subtle acting and to go from him screaming and yelling about how he's not innocent, and that would be a perfect clip for um, the actual Academy show if this was televised. But it shows like a small, really quiet moment where he's kind of like coming to the realization that this is real and he's finally being like go to see his, his wife
1: and kids. So I do think it's worthy. Yeah, I, I love that moment too. I felt that his performance and his win was uh, deserved just because he was very physically expressive and his facial expressions were really convincing and i just felt that he delivered any all of his lines really well and, and he was compelling to watch and so it, it's unfortunate that he wasn't featured more i mean he was in a supporting role which supporting roles at these time was so minimal but he was really good and i really liked the scene where he was stripped of uh of his military attire and he just started yelling to the crowd i'm innocent i'm innocent and it just for some reason for me it really worked
0: Best Actress goes to Louise Rayner for The Good Earth as Olan. Now, this is a very tricky film to talk about because it's uh, extremely racist uh, as the film depicts uh, Chinese farmers kind of struggling to survive, and unfortunately, all the actors like Louise Rayner were all white actors and actresses that all played Chinese roles, so it's not only hard to even talk about; it's hard to ever want to watch or even look at the images from this film because it's, it's just the worst kind of cultural appropriation. And then to be honored for it on top of it is, it's, it's very cringy and it's, it's painful, honestly.
1: Yeah, it goes beyond. It's just, it's racist. It's not even cultural appropriation. It's just racist. Um, and it's the same thing, like I said, you know, earlier with uh, Mickey Rooney and Breakfast at Tiffany's. Like this is, and this also has Paul Muni in the other lead role in the film and both of them are you know made up and meant to look Chinese, and it just it's really shocking to look at and it's really unsettling you know yeah rainer this is her second oscar and she's the first actor to win back-to-back awards in, in the acting categories like yeah cool but the good earth is extremely racist and it's uh something that needs to be talked about i mean yeah the academy can put out as many instagram posts say acknowledging Asian American racism, but until they finally admit that they fucked up and awarded a movie that was offensive and racist to Asians and Asian Americans, I really won't take much of their Instagram posts as really anything.
0: Yeah. There's not much more we can really talk about in this movie. I, I think I, for just like the curiosity, I want to go back and watch it and see just really how fucked up, but come on, how could not a single person on this set be like, should we be doing this? Yeah. Like, is, is
1: no one question this? Like, come on. It's, it's awful. It's really disgusting. Best Actor went to Spencer Tracy in Captain Courageous as Manuel Fidello. So this is the first of Spencer Tracy's of back-to-back wins he will win in the following year. He has nine nominations for the Best Actor Award, which is tied with Lawrence Olivier uh, for that honor. And uh, Captain Courageous was filmed... Uh, by Victor Fleming, who would go on to direct Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz. Any thoughts about, you know, not only Paul Muni not winning, but you also have Frederick Marsh in this category and Robert Montgomery in this category as well. On top of Spencer Tracy, any thoughts or feelings about that?
0: Well, I would definitely like to watch the uh, Spencer Tracy film, but Paul Muni, I don't think is worthy. As we've discussed, his performance is pretty flat and Pretty uninteresting, and that's maybe loss of his performance and more of the character and script. It's hard not to say A Star is Born. I haven't seen the film yet, but that's such an iconic role that's been carried on throughout all of film history. So I'm surprised, but it could be that United Artists tie, as we talked about. Best Director goes to Leo McCary for The Awful Truth. McCary would also go on to direct the 1957 film in A Fair to Remember, which is actually a remake based on The Awful Truth, which now won for Best Direction. And I think it's it's really interesting seeing filmmakers and directors' career as they make a film and maybe to him, even though he won Best Direction, maybe the film didn't work for him and he had to go back and later on make it. Or maybe it was a, a kind of a change in time and maybe there was something about the filmmaking process that he could do in the 50s that he couldn't do here in the 30s. Someone who's made like short films, it's always inspiring to someone make a film and it might not be exactly what they want, but then to getting that choice and, and that option again to go back and, and really make something. And a fair to Remember is an iconic film from the 50s. So,
1: And again, like this is another movie, another category where William Deatley was nominated for, you know, for his direction. I, again, like we talked about it, don't think it was deserved. I don't like, yeah, great that he was nominated, but I, I don't think there's really much that he did that would have been worthy of winning an award, especially the best director award, especially when we were just talking about how Lewis Milestone was such it was such a technical achievement for All Quiet on Western Front. There's nothing technically great or even significant um about uh William Deatley for uh the life of Emil Zola. And before we get to the best picture category, there's actually one film that everyone says should have been nominated and should have won. And it might be surprising to hear, but People say that Snow White and the Seven Dwarves should have won Best Picture for 1937. Any thoughts on that, John? Well, it's still a film that's so
0: relevant. You know, you, we still see clips online, even memes randomly made of it, and even like small little filmmaker accounts always posting the actors that were filmed in order to kind of then go in and be based on the animation for. And it's kind of hard to deny Walt Disney's effect on animation part of it is probably an animation film being put in outstanding production may have been a predicament. It even seems like a predicament in this modern time where toy story, I think was not toy story three was nominated toy for story best 3. picture, but yeah. it's still very limited to ever get an animated picture. In uh, the best picture outstanding production category. What do you think about Snow White and the Seven Doors?
1: Yeah, again, as you were saying before, it's very iconic. You know, everyone always sees the image of Walt Disney with like the seven little Oscar statues. Like, that's a very famous uh, photo. And they did give uh, Snow White an award in the following year as like an honorary type of thing. But I think actually it would have been really cool to have seen it nominated here. I think that actually would have made a really big statement. Um, for people to acknowledge like yeah like animation is a big part of the movie industry we're going to keep on giving walt disney awards like why can't he get a feature film nomination but he's only getting these these uh small short film nominations so yeah so that's a movie that everyone kind of looks back to and it's like oh that should have been nominated and should have won but without further ado we have the outstanding production category and the nominees are a star is born stage door 100 men and a girl Lost Horizon, In Old Chicago, The Good Earth, Dead End, Captain Courageous, The Awful Truth, and the winner of the Best Picture Award of 1937 is The Life of Emile Zola going to Henry Blank for Warner Brothers Pictures. So, (laughs) so John, it was the first win for Warner Brothers, um, which they had been known for making these quote unquote biopics at the time. John, what do you think of Emile Zola winning uh, Best Picture for 1937? I think it's pretty obvious from our conversation so far
0: that we definitely don't think it's worthy. Um, while we haven't seen any other films here in this category, like we have such iconic movies like The Awful Truth, which would then later on be remade as An Affair to Remember, A Star is Born, which is that iconic film that's been remade again and again, really iconic stories obviously the good earth does not belong to be here big red flag as well irving thalberg red flag uh, mgm picture so immediately uh, we probably could guess why that's listed here as a category but i don't think the life of emile zola is a film that's going to be remembered i don't think people are even going to want to go back and watch this not only because we talk so poorly about the film but really because the film's not that interesting it doesn't have really many interesting filmic qualities in terms of its cinematography its acting is is there and it's present and we have these nominees for the actor and supporting actor win but there's just not much there to like think about and it's one of those movies where as soon as it's over you kind of forget what even happened in the entire film and it's disappointing because the events here seem really interesting but they shied away from aspects that would make the story deeper and more interesting.
1: Yeah, like everything that John just said, like it's exactly how I feel. There's just nothing really there. It's two, like completely different storylines happening at the same time. It's just clunky and not as well formed. And again, like the lack of the talk and discussion of the anti-Semitism, surrounded by the whole purpose and events of the film, is really concerning. It brings up a lot of bad feelings. It it you know, uh, it just brings up a lot of issues that shouldn't really have to be there. If they had just said "fuck you, Nazi Germany." and um, and had just completely talked about how it was anti-Semitic, what happened. But let's put it in some numbers, because we love number values on the show. So the Life of Emile Zola on Rotten Tomatoes percentage is an 81% fresh. Uh, the average Rotten Tomatoes rating from critics is a 7.51, uh, which is actually pretty high when you compare it to some other winners. The audience score is a 73 and the average audience score is a 3.64 out of 5. On IMDb, it's a 7.2. And it won three Academy Awards, including Best Picture. John, what did you give The Life of Emil Zola?
0: I gave it a 55.
1: And I actually just changed my score after doing this whole discussion. <laughs> you know, A year ago when I had watched this film, I was like, yeah, it's okay. I, I get, and I gave it like a 60. Okay, like it's not a great movie. It's like a D movie. I just decided right now, I'm like, you know, fuck this film. I hate it more than I hate it simmering. I give it a 40.
0: And the only thing worse, in your opinion, is the Broadway Melody, the second Best
1: Picture winner? At the
0: moment. <laughs> at the moment. Okay. At, at, at the moment. There. Okay. I'm
1: looking forward to what happens then. Moving <laughs> at, forward. At, at, at the moment, it's uh, the second worst film to me. It's just the the only, like, why even give it up to a 40? Because of I'm saying, like, there's no technical elements that are worthy of anything, There's, like, really not much in terms of the writing. Like, again, like, I like Joseph Schildkraut's, like, performance. That's, like, really the only thing that, like, really captivated me. I thought that the Dreyfus Affair is an interesting story. They just were clunky about it. And I think, like, Emile Zola, like, could have been an interesting movie and person to talk about. But, again, like, it was clunky and they didn't do much with it. Uh, So, at the end of the day, I just had to come up with a number because I had to give him some kind of merit for turning on the camera and for filming something and, and putting it together. So, gets a 40 for me uh so our average ratings right now through 10 films i have a 67 and john has a 60 and a half and again that's because we've just had some poor films but we've had some really really good ones the best one so far for us is it happened one night as well as all quiet on the western front so john that is the end of episode 10 of worthy any final thoughts before we journey into our next decade of academy award ceremonies well, what I will end on
0: is a plea to stop making movies about authors. Um, I don't think we need it unless there's something specifically filmic about their life that can be portrayed. Don't make it. Nuh-uh. If you want to learn about an author's life, read their books, read their biography, which probably exists already.
1: I'm like looking through the best picture winner list uh, after you just said that. I don't think there are any authors that are. Yeah, none, unless I'm completely missing one, but maybe that was because it should have been missed. Yeah, so I think that kind of wraps it up here for episode 10 of Worthy. Our next one is going to be about You Can't Take It With You from 1938. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And, and this, this is, Worthy. is Worthy. Let us not pity him because he suffered and endured. Let us envy him. Let us envy him because his great heart won him the proudest of destinies. It was a moment of the conscience
0: of man. Thanks for listening to Worthy, a breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. Listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to WorthySubmissions at gmail.com. That's submissions at gmail.com.